Hello and welcome back to Chasing Perfection, a UConn women's basketball podcast. If this was, what, 15, 20 years ago, this entire podcast would be about the Tennessee game on Thursday (laughs) and only about the Tennessee game on Thursday because that would have been the most important regular season game on UConn's schedule. Obviously not as as important as it used to and actually going to be the first UConn-Tennessee games where one of the two teams isn't ranked. Tennessee obviously not in the poll right now. So a little bit different than what we're used to with UConn-Tennessee. Obviously a much different type of matchup than the early days of the rivalry, the height of the rivalry. But it should still be fun. We will get to that later. But since it is not what it used to be, we're going to hit on a few other things first. And number one thing being last week's episode, we forgot to talk about Gino kind of opening up and talking about why he missed time and his grief with his mother's death and kind of what he went through. And it's long, just so you know, but I do really think it is worth the listen. You know, I I think when, when you go through when you go through something, something like that, um, you, um, you, you kind of talk yourself into thinking that, you know, you're, you're quite prepared. Um, and you rationally, you're quite prepared. You know, so um, when I went down there, you know, um, it was on a Monday after we played somebody. I remember who it was. It was like December 5th or something like that. Um, you know, you think that you, you know, you can handle whatever's coming next. And um, the the next couple of days, when you know it's imminent, um, and you know you're there for three days, and you're not again. You know that's when the first like you you're up 24 hours a day, and. You, you try to get a, a, everything done that you need to get done, say everything you need to say, and and, and try to put a, you know, a, a final, uh, final ball on it, you know. But it's like the delayed effect that happens, you know, the, the initial rationalization like of course this is the way things are supposed to happen this is how it works but then after the fact um, and if it was just you you know but then you see the effect that it has on um, you know my sister who's been probably with her every single day for the last three years um that's like a huge, huge, huge loss for her. So every time you saw her and you saw her face and saw her reaction, it triggers another one in, in, in you. Uh, and it probably, 
you know, isn't until you you get home. And I'm sure everybody that that that's been through this, it's, it's everybody actually at some point in their lives. You can't lay down and close your eyes. You can't sit there and do anything without that image popping into your head. And it's it's you, you can't get it out of your head. No matter what you try to do. And you try to keep busy and you try to do something and you know, and then the minute there's a quiet moment and the minute, you know, it's right there, right in front of you. And it's a constant. Um, so you try to fill it by going to work, you know, and doing things and and um, you're not really you're not really present. You're not in the moment. So you're not really doing anything to help the people on your team because your mind isn't there. You're not present. So then you're mad. You're really mad at yourself because you can't compartmentalize the two things. And then the team's practicing and it's not going good. Then you take it out on them when really they have nothing to do with it. It's all because you personally don't don't feel comfortable in your skin right now. And, and it just escalates. And that's that was the sign that you have to walk away. And, uh, you know, with the cold and with everything else going on. Um, you just, you know, I, I just realize what people talk, say all about. You just need time. You just need time. You just need time away. Um, you just need time to get yourself whole, get yourself together, so you can be good for the people you have to be good for. You know, um, you know, kids have problems, kids have issues, kids deal with things, and you don't want them coming to practice and for two days being totally out of it. You know, and you saying, hey, you need to be able to block that out. Well, you know, it's easier said than done, right? But well, it was good because it, it cleared my mind of a lot of things and it made me realize how simple, how simple it is to do this if you just keep it in perspective and keep it simple, you know? Nothing is as hard and nothing is as complicated as we make it. There's a very simple answer to most things. You just got to be willing to, to accept that you don't have any control over it. That you can't dictate how it's going to go. And once you realize that, I think it's kind of liberating. That... Nika's going to do what she's going to do. That's all there is to it. And the more you let it make you crazy, it's going to affect how you do your job, and it's going to affect her. So, I think coming to the realization that we're going to win Sunday, or we're not going to win Sunday.
job is to be prepared for Sunday. And if we play well, we're going to win. And if we don't, we're not going to win. And Monday morning, we're going to wake up. And if we won, the day is the same. And if we lost, the day is the same. And we got a game Tuesday at City Hall. So I think you almost have to take a NBA coach approach or you know NFL coach approach, where you don't have time to dwell on what if, what if, what if, what just happened, how could that happen? You you can only keep your thoughts on what do I have to do? What's my next step? What's my next step? And after all these years, you know, believe it or not, I take every pass, every dribble, every cut, every box out, you know, every single thing personally to heart. Like, I didn't do a good enough job coaching them. I should have done a better job of teaching that box out. I should have done a better job of how to make that pass so we wouldn't have 28 turnovers, blah, 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 blah. And just go on and on and on and on. And it's uh, debilitating at times for coaches. And the only thing that's that I found to be truly liberating mm-hmm. is, you know, you don't have the ability to control it. And once you relinquish control of it, you do feel a sense of calm and peace and you know I'm not going to get you know you don't understand like I've coached for 35 40 years thinking that if we don't win the national championship I'm going to get fired and that's not a healthy way to live so you have to come to realization like no you've been to what 14 final fours in a row like, if we don't go to the 15th, it's like the program's falling apart. We need to start looking at, you know, maybe changing the offensive coordinator, changing the defensive coordinator, change the recruiting coordinator. And in reality, none of that's true. But these are the things that you carry around with you, you know. So I think this has given me an opportunity to just go. is what it is. You know, we have a thing in, in Italian. All the old guys, you know, when I was a kid. And I would have questions. And uh, and I worked with a bunch of them. And I would always ask questions. None of them went to school. Most of those, they were expert stonemasons and bricklayers and carpenters and And I would want to know something. And they would just look at me and shake their head. And I would keep asking, well, why is it like that? Why? 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 And after, you know, I just, like, I'm a why. Like, why? I always wanted to know why. You know, why? And the answer was pretty simple. In Italian. Perché è così? 
because it is. That's the only explanation. Why she just do that? Because she did. And what are you going to do about it? Nothing. Why does that kid foul a three-point shooter with one minute left? That's what it is. And if you understand that, you don't have to ask why did it happen. Because we ask you all the time why did it happen. You drive yourself crazy. So, next time somebody asks, what happened? Why'd you guys go two for 27 for the three point line? Okay, go see. So I think the biggest thing is it kind of confirms what we were thinking a little bit, how that those two absences were related to each other and all kind of seemed tied into his mother's death, which is really understandable, especially when he lost his father back in the 90s. He missed the entire Big East tournament. And this one, he didn't really miss any time after his mom died, which I thought was a bit of a red flag. And I think we can kind of see now. It ended up being that way, but it also gave a little more, I think, credence to him saying, no, I feel rested. I feel better because it was very obvious that he was able to identify what wasn't right when he was out the first couple of times and talked about fixing those things and getting back on the right track and being in a much better space for returning. And I think it's been very obvious that we've got the same old Gino back especially after the DePaul game, they win by 40 points. And I have never seen someone so happy to be miserable. I mean, he was just reveling in the misery in that post-game press conference, finding everything he could to complain about. It was incredibly enjoyable to watch because you could tell he just loved being in that state where basketball was making him miserable and he was having fun with it. Yeah, exactly. I think the same thing could be said about the Butler game on Saturday, too. He was having plenty of fun with that press conference as well, and a lot of funny one-liners and the the usual Gino that you get in a post-game press conference. So I, I think it's very clear to see that kind of that shift back to what you expect out of Gino. Yeah, and I think the other thing that makes me feel good about going forward is it wasn't like the day he got back, oh, okay, like, it's normal Gino back to usual because I think that also would have been a little bit of a red flag that, all right, is he just like continuing to like hide all of this? But the way he came back against St. John's, the way he looked and just his demeanor on the bench to then like, we started to get glimpses of it, but it still wasn't all the way there. And like, especially recently, it's very much been usual Gino. So there's been that progression back. It's not just, he came out of bed, rolled out of bed, came back one day, and everything was business as usual. Everything was back to normal. It certainly took not a ton of time. I think it was like a week in that span, but he certainly is seems to be at his usual self, which is a good thing for everyone. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's good that he took the time, obviously, and I think also good to open up and talk about it too, with someone with that kind of What's the word I'm looking for? Therapeutic? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I just kind of decided to say that, like, 
for someone of like his as well known as him to kind of open up about that and talk about that I think is important in terms of just like normalizing that those things do take time and it's important to take time for yourself when you need it yeah and you could tell as he was talking about it like he he pretty much went into that unprompted like there's a question he didn't really answer the question it it didn't really matter but you could tell as he was just talking about it and going through it and like getting deeper, you could almost like feel the weight lifting off of him because you have to imagine everything was very vague when he went out. It was just flu like symptoms. He's feeling unwell. So to be able to kind of tell the world what happened, I think also just lifted a weight off of him in the way that, okay, now I'm not going to get asked every five seconds. Oh, why like what happened? Are you feeling better? Like he was able to tell what he needed to tell to, you know, answer all the questions and also just kind of get it out too. Cause it's one thing to have all of those thoughts, but it's another to verbalize them and to tell them to a group of people. And then really the wider world with how much he said. So it seemed like just the more he talked and talked, it just helped him that much more. Another thing that we talked about a good amount last week, but then the news actually came through is AZ FUD. So UConn announced that she did re-injure that knee, the right knee injury that we don't know the specifics of against Georgetown. She's going to miss time, but there is no definite timetable. That feels like a little bit of a combination of, you know, she and her family just don't want to talk about it. And also they don't want to have pressure of, okay, well, it's been three weeks. Why isn't she back? It's been four weeks. Why isn't she back? It's been five weeks. Is she coming back yet? She can take it on her own timeline. I imagine the mental part of this is going to also be a pretty big hurdle. I mean, it was not even a full two games back that she got re-injured. So if it takes her a little more time mentally to get back into it, I think that would be very understandable. So I think we've kind of seen for the better part of two months now that UConn knows how to play without AZ FUD and there are some very clear limitations there. And obviously it's a lot better when she's out there, but this is by no means a situation where UConn just has to, you know, it's just sitting and waiting for her to get back kind of the way that it was with Paige Beckers last year. They're still pretty much chugging along and playing good basketball and it more feels like AZ FUD's going to get back and she's going to get plugged into what they're doing as opposed to being the savior for the season that they're counting on to come fix everything. Yeah, I would really agree with that. I think obviously this team is going to be better when AZ FUD is healthy and AZ FUD is back on the floor, but this team is still really good without her. And I think that's kind of what sets it apart last year. Last year, I think you were kind of like, when is Paige going to be back? When is Paige going to be back? Everything's fine when Paige is back. And now... I think it's they're they're getting wins. They're getting good wins. They're getting big wins over good opponents. And this next stretch is going to test that. I think with you know Tennessee, South Carolina in two weeks, Villanova. Um, but they've been able to find a lot of success without her. So I think that speaks really well for where this team is at and how they're only going to get better when she's back on the floor. But I think you're still talking about a team that's in that top five nationally without easy food. Yeah, and. Part of that also probably is just thanks to the way that everyone else is playing. I mean, Mm -hmm. we just saw Ohio State lose to an Iowa team that, I mean, saying that is a tough enough loss to begin with, as uh, frequent listeners of the show would know. 
but also the fact that Iowa was out was without one of its better players in I'm now totally blanking on her name, but I'm gonna know it once you say it. <laughs> yeah, McKenna Warnock. I will I'll cut uh Ohio State some slack too though, because they've been playing without JC Sheldon this whole time too, and she is expected to get back. I don't know what the exact timeline is. So I mean they're down a player too. I still think that Ohio State has probably won enough at this point to prove that they're they're also part of that top group. Um but yeah, still a rough loss. Yeah, and that's pretty much been the case for everyone not named Yukon, South Carolina, and the school down south that we <laughs> do not need to mention on this podcast. The uh the purple and yellow school or whatever colors they call themselves. So they're really the only like I I still look at Notre Dame that loss in the light of, well, yeah, you lost AZ mid-game and you were up when you lost her. They figured out how to play without her now, but you're, they're not going to figure that out in the middle of the game, especially Notre Dame played pretty well that game too. And I think Notre Dame's proved itself as towards the top of the nation, but nothing crazy. So, or like they're, they're good, even if they're not like in this top, top tier with the South Carolinas and even the Yukons and even the Ohio States of the world, but so Yukon, I, I haven't looked at a game that Yukon's really had a major slip up, which I think just kind of speaks to the way they've played, especially since they haven't had their best player this whole time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, we talked about the Notre Dame game and like that Maryland game. We've talked about how you can throw it up, but that throw it away. But that Maryland team is also a top ten team right now. If you look at the poll. I don't know that I agree that they're a top 10 team, but regardless, I mean, you probably lost by what, like eight points against them when they had like a fraction of their team. So I do think that they've been able to find just a really impressive amount of success despite everything going on. Yeah. That Maryland loss continues to look a lot like that. The Maryland loss still looked better for UConn than I think it did for Maryland. Considering yeah, I the think... circumstances. Even if like UConn is healthy, it doesn't look like a bad loss. And then considering the fact that they were missing three starters, like it's not, I, I, just, I don't think the committee is going to think much of that when you talk about like seating and things like that. And when you look at the three starters that were out, I mean, even if you have Nika Mule in that game, I think UConn still probably wins. Yep. So she, the, the end of the DePaul game, not to jump too far ahead, but when you only have three people that you can put on the bench, I think it was Carl Adamick said to me, like you got the three players that you need or that you want on the bench on the bench. And it was Dorka, Aliyah, and Lou, which that is correct. But then also Nika Mule's still out on the floor. And it's like, you almost kind of feel like you should just play with four players to avoid the injury. It's not like DePaul's going to make that comeback. So yeah, I, I think we've just gotten to a point where UConn knows its identity pretty well on who it is without AZ FUD. It's going to get tested against Tennessee, but that identity is it's bigs dominating. And we saw that especially with, well, we've seen that all this time, but they really kind of proved that against DePaul with the way that Aliyah Edwards and, and Dorgi Uhas and Aubrey Griffin really played against Anisa Morrow. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, they were all three of them were were fantastic against DePaul. And we've talked about how this stretch coming up is really a test of how good this front court is. Obviously, they've been fantastic so far, but they haven't necessarily had the toughest matchups to play. And DePaul was kind of the start of that, those tests that are coming. And I mean, obviously passed it with flying colors. I think they scored 58 points in the paint collectively as a team last night, which is insane in its own right. But I mean... 20 points for Aaliyah Edwards. Dorka was just shy of that. Aubrey had a great night. Just all around a really strong performance. I think the thing that stood out to me the most was, even though Anissa Morrow had 20 and 12 or whatever she got, she's going to get her points. But I thought Aaliyah Edwards just did a fantastic job of guarding her, keeping her out of the paint, keeping her out of what DePaul wanted to do in the the offense with her so I think that was a really good thing to see she's maybe not the toughest defensive matchup for UConn in terms of like Dork and Ole are going to find a way to score around her but I think in terms of being able to defend her that was very impressive I mean you better watch a talk about Anissa Moro's defense she is <laughs> on the short list for the Naismith defensive player of the year award yeah, that's what happens when you make lists or you vote on lists based off of who has the most rebounds and blocks and not actually watching basketball. Yeah, it, it it's really hard trying to talk about Anissa Morrow after that game because I think, I mean, she's still a really good player. And I think the way that last night went had a lot more to do with UConn. But I mean, Aaliyah Edwards stuffed her into a body bag. It was it was yeah. a twenty and twelve night for her. But I mean, are you telling me that Aaliyah Edwards and Anissa Moro's double doubles were anywhere near similar? No, Aaliyah absolutely dominated that matchup the entire twenty six minutes she was on the court yesterday. Yeah, it was. It was to use a boxing term a. I actually don't know boxing terms at all. It was a knockout, I guess. Would be it it wasn't even close. It was a blowout in the way they played. I mean, I think Aaliyah Edwards All-American All-American candidacy is certainly something that can be discussed. I don't think it's necessarily a slam dunk not because of the way that she's playing, but more the voters and just kind of the front court picture that there is in the country, but if there were any lingering concerns about is this version of Aaliyah Edwards for real? I think we firmly, firmly, firmly saw against DePaul that, yes, she is actually this good. Yeah, exactly. And I think we're going to get three more chances to see that over the next what, week and a half, too. We've got Tennessee, you've got Nova, and then you've got South Carolina. So I think you're going to be a lot able to say a lot more firmly, like, is she an All-American or not in the, a week and a half from today? I mean, they're all really interesting for different reasons because Tennessee's a game where UConn's expected to win and she's going to have to play really well for that to happen. To skip ahead to South Carolina, it's not like Aaliyah Boston is a great matchup for her. I mean, she doesn't have the height that Aaliyah Boston does. So how she handles that is going to be really interesting. And then we've seen her guard Maddie Segrist in the past and do a really good job. So I'm just... Curious to see how this version of Aaliyah Edwards does the job because it hasn't always been consistent in those games. So, yeah, not only are they tests, but they're kind of three different tests in a way. 
Yeah, exactly. I think, like you said, Tennessee, she needs to play well. But Tennessee is a team that has more size than a lot of the teams UConn has played so far. So I think that in its own right is a test, even if they're not, you know, the top five, top ten team you thought they might be at the beginning of the season. Um, Maddie Seacrest is its own test. And I mean, we'll talk about that more probably later. And then that South Carolina game, even though I agree, Boston's not a great matchup for her, but just the amount of size that South Carolina has in the front court and how not just Edwards, but Dorothy has and Aubrey Griffin kind of navigate all that and can match up with that, I think is going to be the most interesting thing we're probably going to see from this team for, until March. I also think someone that could be a sneaky factor in this stretch if she can get up to a higher minutes limit is Ayanna Patterson because you know I I didn't watch much of that fourth quarter because the game was over and I was trying to get my story done but I gave her a mention in my story because it was her first game back so I'm like okay what were her stats she barely played and she had six rebounds she does that like every single time she's out on the court for an extended stretch she just grabs a million rebounds and hmm What was UConn's biggest issue in the national championship game? It couldn't get a rebound to save its life in those first five minutes of the first half and the first five minutes of the second half. So even if UConn loses that game, if that, if the front court even just holds its own rebounding, I think that is the biggest thing because as we know, Aaliyah Boston is going to get hers. You probably aren't going to win that front court battle. And you certainly aren't going to do it in a decisive fashion the way that you did against DePaul. But if you're at least not giving South Carolina third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances, then that's at least going to be progress. And it's just going to be a really good barometer for what you need to do going into the NCAA tournament. Because if you want to win a national championship, there is a very, very good chance you're going to have to go through that team again. So last year, UConn, it didn't even feel like UConn and South Carolina played in the regular season because it was so early and so many things transpired for UConn after that game to the point where they were basically different teams when they met in the national championship game. UConn isn't going to be exactly the same and neither will South Carolina, but it's a lot closer to what we're going to see from both these teams in March. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, the expectation going into that game, especially being it's very unlikely that AZ Fudd will play, is that they're they're not going to win it, which I think is fine. I think it comes down to more how do they play them? How does that front court battle work, look? And kind of, you know, how close can they keep it without an AZ Fudd expecting that if you go into that, that matchup in April, you're going to have AZ Fudd on the court. All right, this take just hit me off the top of my head. So please uh, let me know if I'm even being sane here. But it, I almost kind of feel like if UConn wins, that might not be that great. Because if UConn can beat South Carolina without easy FUD, I feel like they could go into a potential rematch with maybe a little more hubris than they should have and i think south carolina would be very determined to uh change that result and feel like they probably i i think if uconn were to beat south carolina it would take some help from south carolina not playing at its best and i think that would just kind of fuel south carolina in a repeat performance does any of that make any sense and is any of that logical 
I, I see what you're saying. I don't know that I agree with it just because I think I think this team is a little bit more mature than that just from the amount that they've been dealing with. Um, but I, I do see what you're getting at in that, like, if they can beat them without easy fight, obviously that would be quite the upset and it kind of could take their, their eye off the focus a little bit if they get into that rematch. But I don't know. I just think this team is more mature than that. That's fair. If they do win, though, then UConn firmly puts itself in the driver's seat to, I don't know if they'd be the number one overall seed, but they would certainly be the favorite to win the national championship. Yeah, I I think that part is especially fair. Number one overall seed, yeah, I don't know. It would probably depend if South Carolina drops another one or not. It's hard to say. It's hard to say who would get it in that case. I think you just the the biggest one that you want to stay out of is being the eighth overall seed, because yeah. that means you you're don't the want two to have seed to in South Carolina's region, right? In South Carolina, yes. So exactly. UConn's going to be like barring a total collapse the rest of the way or something really weird happening. UConn's going to be on the top two lines, and as long as they don't lose. If they're only lost the rest of the way is South Carolina, I it would probably be tough for them not to be on the one line, especially oh. with having the number one strength of schedule, right? I think if, yeah, if they're only lost the rest of the way is South Carolina, they're on the one line. I, would and then, I guess it's hard to say because you don't know what's going to happen with everyone else, but I kind of think right now, like, they're like on the line between a one and a two with the like, how do you view the AZ FUD situation? But if the AZ FUD situation is like AZ's back for the NCAA tournament, they're on the one line right now. Not to dive too deep into bracketology, but now I'm really curious. So assuming the committee does a, what is it, a snake rank, ranking? Is mm-hmm. that the correct term? Yeah, assuming S-curve, they do yeah. an S curve, that's the word I was looking for. Then. South Carolina would be paired with the weakest one seed, right? Right. That yeah. makes me feel like UConn is probably going to go to Seattle if they're a one seed, right? Because Oh, so it doesn't they'll be paired with the weakest one, but I don't think it matters. Like I don't think the fourth one has to go to Greenville. Like I don't actually think it matters. I think oh, they're going to do was... it geographically. So like oh, okay. if it was like even if UConn was like the fourth one, like they could still go to Greenville, assuming that it's like makes sense geographically. I think it's going to be like South Carolina, if they're the number one overall, is going to go to Greenville. Say Stanford's number two, they're going to go to Seattle. If UConn was number three, they would go to Greenville because like that's the better location for them. Okay. In my head, I was thinking that like, oh, and actually um, looking at, charlie's bracket charlie cream's just projected each side of the bracket has a different city i was imagining that each side of the bracket was the same city so like greenville and greenville were going to be on the left and seattle and seattle were going to be on the right okay so then it's essentially like a 50 50 chance if uconn gets sent out west then yeah i think it comes down to where they end up in that overall s curve on the one or the two line or whatever and then who's ahead of them in terms of um like uh, assuming they end up on the one line where on the one line they end up and like you know because if it's like 
Stanford and Ohio State are ahead of them. Well, like Ohio State doesn't want to go to the West Coast either. So then yeah, yeah I'm gonna end up there type deal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, we're just going to dive into bracketology now. So I'm looking <laughs> at UConn is projected to be the two seed in Seattle on the same side of the bracket as South Carolina, but a different regional than South Carolina. With Stanford being the one seed in that region, UConn would play Albany and then the winner of Louisville, Mississippi State. Maryland or Baylor would be the likeliest Sweet 16 foes. And then Stanford... North Carolina, Iowa State, and Illinois, Alabama would kind of be the other higher seeds up there. That I don't think would be the worst draw, but I'd rather play someone like Ohio State or Indiana than Stanford to go to the Elite Eight. Yeah, I mean, that's the assumption that like Stanford is the the fourth one right now, which one I don't know that I agree with. So, I mean, all of that's going to move, right, though? So, like, Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I tend to, like, worry less about regions right now and more about, like, who's actually on the one line, who's on the two line, things like that, because all of that stuff moves so quickly, especially as you start getting into, like, the rules and stuff of, like, how many teams from a conference can be in different places and stuff. It Like, one game moves all of that by a lot. Oh, absolutely. I... I just was uh, very curious once I pulled it up. Wait. Yeah, fair. There's a Texas A&M CC. There's two <laughs> Texas A&Ms? I did not know that. <laughs> it's Texas A&M Corpus Christi. They're currently projected to play in the play-in game to play uh-huh. South Carolina. I have never even heard of that school before. <laughs> Me neither. Didn't know it existed. Don't know uh, what conference it's in. <laughs> I have never even like seen the logo. They're the Islanders. Huh. I are they independent? No, they can't be. No, they wouldn't be in the NCAA tournament without it. Why doesn't it say? (laughs) Yeah, it it doesn't tell me what conference they're in. Okay, well now (laughs) I really need to do a deep dive on Texas AM Corpus Christi. It's basketball. They play in the Southland Conference. Uh, I think that's the same one as was it Mercer? Maybe I don't know. Honestly, my knowledge of who's in the low major conferences is is not great. Every without fail, every NCAA tournament, either men's or women's, there's a team that I've certainly never heard of. Yep. <laughs> so apparently, this year it's going to be Texas A&M Corpus Christi. <laughs> uh, back to the team that we cover, UConn. I just think a lasting takeaway from the DePaul game is something Gino mentioned. I asked him about Aliyah avoiding foul trouble more this year. And he talked about how she's in much better shape. And that really felt evident in this matchup, just how fit Aliyah Edwards is and (laughs) how much that's really driving her game right now, because she just goes and goes and goes but she doesn't really seem like she gets tired. She just doesn't stop at any point when she's on the floor, which Gino likes to say, that's the hallmark of a great player. When if when a great player, or when a tired player, no, what, what's the quote? I'm totally botching it. When a good player gets tired, a great player kicks the good player's ass. I think that's the quote. And <laughs> I think that is precisely what we saw against DePaul last night. Yeah, exactly. And I think... 
I mean, in terms of how good of shape she is and just, I mean, she only played 26 minutes or whatever it was last night, but that time on the floor, the way that her and Anissa Mora were battling, especially on Ali on the defensive end and the, to play like that for any stretch of time uh, consistently is really impressive. And she never took a position off on the defensive end. So speaking of Aaliyah, something that's been a growing topic and something that even Gino's talked about for the last few games, Aaliyah Edwards being a potential All-American. I don't think it's really a question of is she playing well enough to be one because I think that's a very easy yes, but it's more a factor of can she make one of those teams? Because a lot of the players that were all Americans last year, not that they deserve to be on those teams just because they were on the team last year, but you know, once they're back, it is a little more difficult to fit on when there's an Aaliyah Boston, who's going to be first team all American regardless as she should be when there's Cameron Brink, when there's other players out there whose names I'm blanking on, but what, do you think about Aaliyah Edwards' candidacy to be an All-American right now? I think it's really good. I don't know that she's necessarily going to be a first-team All-American because, like you said, there's a lot of really good bigs right now, and I think getting in on, like, a first-team is going to be hard, but I think she falls somewhere in that first to third-team range. And probably, I would expect, most of the teams, considering, or assuming she you know continues to play at the level she's at right now, I think the way I look at it right now, at least in terms of bigs, and I think most people would probably agree with this, is there's like a a top tier that's Aaliyah Boston, as you mentioned, Cameron Brink, and then I put Angel Reese from LSU in there as well. Her numbers are just been absolutely insane. You can say what you want about their strength of schedule, and it's all justified, but I think regardless, Angel Reese is an All-American. And then I think the next tier of bigs Aaliyah is part of that. I think it's Aaliyah, and then I think it's Mackenzie Holmes at Indiana. I think that's kind of the next group. So I think she's in that second group, which I think pretty firmly should put her on, you know, a second team. And then you've got, I'm trying to think who else. Like, Anissa Morrow's still in that conversation, too. I know Maddie Seacrest is, like, listed as a forward, but I, I see her more as a wing, so I'm not putting her in, like, that that top bigs conversation, but she's certainly in the All-American conversation as well. Um but I, I feel pretty good assuming Aaliyah continues to play at the level she's playing, especially over these next like two weeks, that, that she's going to be finding herself somewhere on most of the, the places that put out a list. Is Cameron Brink even better than Aaliyah at this point, though? <sighs> like, looking at her numbers, 14.2 yeah. points per game. That's not bad by any means 9.7 rebounds per game those two are good but then she's only playing 23.5 minutes per game because fouls are still an issue at 2.3 per game and she's got she has the most turnovers of her career this season they have increased every year of her career her three-point shooting has dropped pretty significantly like i don't actually know if there's a good argument you can make for cameron brink being better than Aaliyah edwards yeah, I think where Brink stands out is on the defensive end, and her numbers there are a little bit more flashy because of the blocks. I think she's averaging like three, three point three blocks per game. So sure, you're close. Okay. Um. So yeah, it's. I think that's where she she kind of stands out is on the blocks. Um. But 
I agree. I think, I mean, there's a conversation that Olya could be better than Cameron Brink. Is that going to actually come through in a like All-American team? Probably not. I still think Cameron Brink's going to get the nod. That's fair. I uh, just, I looked up her stats and Aliyah's basically averaging 10 more minutes per game than Cameron yeah. Brink. Higher so yeah, I guess total. if you look, yeah. yeah, look at it from that perspective though. So she's playing 10 minutes more per game and her numbers, like in terms of rebounds and points aren't that much higher than Brink's. So the fouls are definitely an issue and it's Brink's numbers would probably be higher if she could stay at a foul triple. But I think there's kind of it's like a a two-sided thing you can argue it in both ways right it it almost feels like they kind of meet in the middle almost where brink's got more on the defensive end compared to Aaliyah, but Aaliyah's got more than brink on the offensive end and the playing time aspect and when you kind of compare the two and put them together they meet a little somewhere in the middle and then you can argue until you're blue in the face about which side they deserve to be on yeah exactly so we have tennessee on thursday i'm heading down to knoxville i'm very excited for that i've never been to tennessee in my life and it is going to be the first game at tennessee since the rivalry's been renewed with a real crowd there they had some fans there the last time but it wasn't anything near what it's going to be on thursday that is a crowd that has had, what, 15 years, 18 years <laughs> worth of hate and watching UConn surpass it as the best program in women's college basketball and see UConn just continue to, not that they've gotten better, you can't get better than winning four national championships in a row, but still be the premier program of women's college basketball while Tennessee has, if they're not off the map, they're falling hard, so... That I expect to be a very, very hostile environment and a very, very fun environment. So Tennessee's having a weird year. What can you tell us about them? Yeah, they started off the season rough. And I think when you look at why they're not in the poll right now, it's it's from that start to the season. I think they were ranked like fifth, somewhere in the top five heading into the year. Um, and it took quite the tumble to start the season they played a really tough schedule to start out and I think just just fell short of where expectations for this team were. They lost their opener to Ohio State and lost to Indiana, lost to UCLA, Gonzaga. So we're talking about, you know, all teams that are ranked in the top 25 right now that they've lost to. So not necessarily bad losses, but um, they, they struggled to start out the season. But the, they've kind of turned things around in that the last game they lost was before the holidays, and that was at Stanford, and they lost by seven points. So I think a very respectable loss and a very not a different kind of loss than some of those other losses. They're, I think, actually almost back in the poll, too, receiving votes. But I think this Tennessee team is better, maybe, than their ranking in the AP poll, which is probably not something we say often, because usually I just complain about teams being too high <laughs> in the AP poll. But I think this is definitely a top 25 team, maybe even higher than that. I think the Hoop sets rating has them around 12th, which feels aggressive, but they did play a really hard schedule. Um, so I think they're they're a better team than people think they are. And the one thing that it's going to be, I think, tough for UConn, in addition to obviously the environment, is going to be really tough is the size. They don't have Tamar Key, who was their um, starting center. She's out for the season. so. 
that's a bit of a blow to their size, but they still, they have a lot of length at pretty much every position on the floor, similar to what they had last year. We've got some really good transfers that are kind of helping navigate some of the issues they had scoring the ball last year. They really struggled offensively last year. They're, they're much better offensively this year, in my opinion. Um, and then hopefully Jordan Horson is healthy to play because I think that this matchup becomes a lot less exciting if she's not on the court. She's been dealing with an illness. I think Cora Hall said today that there wasn't an update quite yet on whether she would be playing on Thursday, but and she's kind of probably the biggest player that we talked about last year and the main one to watch uh, kind of going into this game. And then I'd say the other one is Rakia Jackson, who's the Mississippi State transfer. She's been coming off the bench for Tennessee, but is actually their leading scorer. So that's kind of an interesting dynamic. Yeah, it feels like, especially with the team that UConn's going to have, we know kind of what they're capable of in most games, but this feels like a different type of level, especially because, as you said, it's not like Tennessee's been really bad all year. So I think we're going to get a pretty good idea of where this UConn team is, at least without AZ FUD, because if they go into Tennessee and win this game by like 10, 12 points, and it's not actually that close, then you know, okay, then the team is really good. And we already knew that, but like this just re- reaffirms it. And if it's a close game and they pull out a tight win, then I think we still feel pretty good. And I still think a loss would hurt. I think this is still yeah. a game that UConn should be winning, even without who they have. I just don't think it's going to be as easy as, you know, the ones that we've gotten used to the last couple of weeks. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if they come out and win this, like they've won some of the games that they've won in the last couple of weeks, that this team is even better than we thought it is, I think. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's going to be a somewhat tight game, but I think if you can, you kind of can create some separation and pull away, I think that's a really good sign. Um, but I agree. A loss would not be good. They, they are expected to win this game. Yeah, and I mean, how many games do we really talk about UConn? Oh, a loss would be, that would make sense. Like it's yeah. Maryland when they're down to starting a freshman who is going to a junior college and South Carolina, assuming AZ's not back yet, which I think it would be really surprising if she was. So yeah. either you have no one or you're playing the defending national champions who haven't lost a game in a long time. Exactly. After Tennessee, UConn the schedule doesn't exactly get easier because then Villanova comes into the XL Center. Villanova, and I should say Maddie Segrist, because that is not Villanova's entire team, but that is a lot of Villanova's team. And she probably isn't going to be in the National Player of the Year conversation. Maybe she should be, but she is certainly one of the best players in the country. Yeah, she absolutely should be. I feel like I'm starting to see a little bit more traction on that, but yeah, still not the deserved amount she's leading the country in scoring i could go on i will save everyone from getting on my soapbox about it but she she is one of the the top players in the country and someone that absolutely should be in that that shortlist for national player of the year and i think how uconn defends her is going to be very interesting to watch i think they've had a lot of success defending her in the past we talked about Olivia edwards especially in the 
NCAA tournament, or not the NCAA too, the Big East tournament last year did a really good job on her, so I'm looking forward to that matchup. Um, but I think the other thing is going to be like UConn's perimeter defense and not focusing too much on Seekers because I feel like in that game that they lost to Villanova last year, there was plenty of injuries and stuff that that played into that, but it wasn't really Maddie Seekers that beat them. I think she only had 16, which I know only, but that is an only number for Maddie Seegris. And it was the rest of their role players really stepping up and hitting shots. So I think that's what UConn has to be careful of in that matchup as well as who else from their team can get hot. I've really liked what I've seen from their point guard, Lucy Olson, this year. He just had another player, I'm forgetting her name, but hit like five threes against Creighton. And that's how they blew Creighton out last week. So it'll be... It should be an interesting game, and they're they're a top twenty five team this year, and it'll be another good test for UConn. Not to go off topic because I do have Villanova thoughts, but remember when we thought, or when Creighton was the second best team by a wide margin in the Big East? No, I think that's pretty handedly Villanova's spot. <laughs> yeah, and it's not like it was undeserved from Creighton either. They played no. such a tough schedule, and they have just fallen apart. Like, nosedived. I don't understand. Like, for the amount of success that they had in their non-conference against a tough schedule, they've just, I don't know what they're doing in the Big East. <laughs> they're essentially the UConn men's basketball of <laughs> yes. Big East women's yes. basketball. <laughs> that is a perfect analogy. Because <laughs> <laughs> things are going great, and all of a sudden, what happened? Yep. You're looking around, <laughs> and the plane's on fire. Yeah. Yep. That That's... The perfect comparison. <laughs> yeah, that's. It's one of those games where it almost feels like DePaul in a different form, where you know UConn's probably going to win that game, but there's still a lot that you can learn. Whereas when they go to Providence and beat Providence by seventy on Wednesday, a week from Wednesday, we're not going to learn anything from that game yeah. besides the fact that UConn is a lot better than Providence, which we already knew. So even if this ends up as a i don't think it'll be like a 30 point game but even if it ends up as a 30 point game there's still a lot that is gonna be uncovered from that matchup yeah exactly i look at it kind of like depaul and that uconn's probably going to win i think it's a harder game than depaul to be fair but like yeah uconn's probably going to win it i would say pretty easily but there's a lot of things to learn from i think we learned a lot from depaul you learned a lot from focusing on the matchup with Anissa Morrow and focusing on how Aaliyah played. And I think there's things like that that you can focus on in that Villanova game that teach us a lot, even if he kind of goes and wins it by 25 points. Yeah. We haven't really... Well, we actually have seen in the just the last week that UConn's done pretty well against some star players. Lauren Park Lane has made a living sometimes out of torching <laughs> UConn, and she really didn't do much when UConn went down to Seton Hall. And we've talked plenty about the way Anissa Morrow played on Monday night. So UConn's been doing pretty well against some of these star players on other Big East teams. And now the way that they kind of handle Segrist and the job that they do against her is going to tell us a lot about both how they plan to go against some of these top players and how they can even do it because it's one thing to go in with a plan and it's another to execute it and come away feeling good about the way you played. 
Yeah, exactly. I'm particularly very excited to see how they handle Seagrass because I think she's just one of the most difficult players to, to guard and that she can kind of score from anywhere on the floor. And also the, the like the degree of difficulty of shots that she makes. Sometimes it's like it looks like it's really well defended and she's still going to make the basket. So I think watching that matchup and probably going to be a lot of Ali Edwards is going to be really interesting. I don't think she will, but it would be fun if Maddie Seagrass took her fifth year at Villanova. Like, ideally, it would be at Villanova, not at, like, a power school, just to see if, like, she could actually make a run with Villanova. I agree. I think they're, like, a little bit too young this year to really kind of make a deep run. But if she played a fifth year, they could be really good next year. But I don't know that she actually will. I think she very much in would make sense for her to go to the WNBA this year, but yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, but if there is a program that really looks like it's gonna start taking off, it's absolutely Villanova. Cause we know what Denise Dillon can do as a coach. Mm-hmm. We know she can recruit and they've already kind of started pushing into that conversation and having, having one nationally renowned player is usually a pretty good start to getting more. Yeah, exactly. And I think it was actually crazy. I was watching their game against Creighton the other day and it was Kim Kim Adams on the call and talking about how like apparently Belnova was Maddie Seagrass' only like power conference offer coming out of high school, which is just wild to me. Like she's very clearly one of the best players in the country and had no offers other than Nova that were major conference teams. Also, it's not like she needed a lot of development and it took her a while to get going. Right. Didn't she win Big East Freshman of the Year and like basically every single Freshman of the Week award? Yeah, I'm pretty sure she did. And like her numbers obviously I mean, have just gotten better every year. Like she's averaging 25 a game, but I'm pretty sure she was averaging like 16 a game her freshman year. So she's been playing at a high level since she arrived. I wonder if that's just one of those things where you know, either her high school coach or maybe she didn't play for a great AAU program or maybe she just wasn't great in the recruiting process. So she just didn't get uncovered and Notre Dame or not Notre Dame Villanova just happened to happen to catch her eye or she happened to catch Villanova's eye. Maybe it's a deal like that, but I, what just when players come to college and immediately start playing that well that quickly I, I just don't understand how they ended up under the radar yeah I, I agree I mean I think part of it is that like the the recruiting services and the rankings and everything surrounding women's basketball are just not as well developed as a lot of other places or a lot of other men's sports but I agree just for someone that's at that level playing in a legitimate conference that quickly. It just is so hard to understand how they flew under the radar that much. It, it's one of those things where if she was playing at a even lower conference, like, uh, I don't know, just at some, one of those like Northeast schools, well, she'd basically be doing what Lou did at Fairfield. Mm-hmm. That would basically be what she was doing. And she'd be a really interesting pickup for, uh, power conference type program. Yeah, exactly. 
So before we wrap up, just the last bit of news from the week. 2023 signee Jana L. Alfie has enrolled early. She showed up campus on Sunday. There was a funny moment in the post-game press conference where someone asked the players, you know, how she's fitting in and what she's like. And they they kind of laughed and shrugged their shoulders and said, like, I, she showed up last night. So they've gotten to know her for a day, which <laughs> it's a little tough. And for her second day on campus or in Connecticut to be a pretty decent snowstorm after coming from Egypt that has to be quite the culture shock. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> I think the big thing, though, is that she's not going to play this year. And they said that in the release, and then Gino kind of reaffirmed it. And it felt like a lot of people didn't really get it. Like, why would she come early? And it's something that the UConn men have done, not a ton, but a few times under Dan Hurley. A cook, a cook came in a semester early practiced with the team and then was having a stellar freshman year before he tore his Achilles and Alex Caravan did it too. And, you know, he's been a consistent starter for UConn. He's been a very solid player for them. So I think we've seen that it has value in acclimating yourself to the program. And by the time the preseason comes around next fall, she's not going to be a freshman. She's going to know what a practice is like. She's going to know what, the dog days of the season are like and how to kind of get into that mental mindset for March, which should only help her get off to a faster start. And Gino has been very high on her. He said, thinks she's going to be a WNBA player. He thinks that she's going to be an impact type player. So it's not something that they do frequently, but it makes a lot like there's no point in burning her right, her freshman year to play one month, of regular season games in one month in March, especially when she's already so far behind, especially the front court. It's not like they desperately need front court help. I mean, they need players. Sure. They need warm bodies, but it, it's not worth it to sacrifice one entire year of her career. Unless like when it was the COVID year, when everyone got the extra year. So she just spent, so like sailor Poff and Barger, there was no harm in having her come early because she just got the extra year automatically. And she wouldn't have, had that fifth year had she come in in the fall. So I don't think there's really any downside in this happening, especially coming from Egypt. You get to know the culture a little bit. And if you're shell shocked by everything for this part of the season, that doesn't really matter because then you've got the whole summer, you've got the whole preseason and next year you can be a freshman with a head start on your other three freshmen. Yeah. I think the other big piece of it too, is looking at like, what this UConn team looks like next year. And there is a hole in the front court because Dorka Uhas is going to be gone, but she gets to now learn from Dorka some in the front court and, and get some of that experience in practice to kind of help be part of that solution next year. Yeah, Dorka Uhas and a whole lot of question marks for a whole lot of different reasons with Amari DeBerry is seemed to start being a net positive out there. She's not... <laughs> setting well she is setting personal records but it she's not lighting the world on fire but she looks more and more like a a capable college basketball player every single time she's on the floor which has never been the case then ayana patterson i have to imagine is going to be a little better next year and we saw how good she could be in just the exhibition so we could even see that this year and she can expand on the next year and 
Ice Brady, I I don't really know what to expect out of her next year because an injury as major as hers, yeah, she could have had this impact this year, but it's also quite possible that that just affects her the rest of her career and she's not quite the player they expected her to be. I, I have no idea if that's the case and maybe the patella is one that's a lot easier for basketball players to recover from, but it's just a concern and she still hasn't played any games in her UConn career. So it's not like she's some guaranteed thing either, but you do have Aaliyah Edwards. So if you're just trying to figure out who's going to play behind Aaliyah Edwards, you could have much worse problems like Nafisa Collier graduating and only having Olivia Nelson Adota on your roster. And that's not a knock on Olivia Nelson Adota. They literally did not have anyone else behind there. Yeah, exactly. I think they're they're creating more options for all those question marks by having her here early and, and learning starting now. Yeah, she's going to be a really interesting player to watch. Just first ever player from Egypt. Her father was the women's national is the women's national team coach. I think the way that Gino's been so high on her that I don't know, like Gino always says good things about the freshmen and every year signing day comes around and he says every single team in the country feels good about the players they have coming in, but it's not often he goes out of his way to heap some of the praise on players that as he has with Jana. So uh, I think that just caught my eye a little bit or caught my ear, I guess. Definitely. On that note, that'll do it for this episode of Chasing Perfection. We'll be back next week after the Tennessee and Villanova games. It's quite a week coming up. Then that'll be our preview episode for South Carolina. So we have hit the home stretch right here. This is going to be quite a couple of weeks for the Huskies. We'll be back to cover all of it the next couple of weeks. Thanks for listening.